from the CPRI Knowledge Hub and CPRIHub.org. This is Research Minutes, a deep dive into new and important research in education. Today we're looking at affirmative action, which allows universities to consider race in their evaluation of college applicants in an effort to build diversity. Following decades of legal challenges and pushback, however, eight U.S. states have now formally banned the approach. We, we have this fairly robust evidence base that says that when these bans are adopted, we see a decrease in the enrollment of underrepresented racial ethnic minority students. And so I was really fascinated if we know this already, what was sort of happening in these states when uh, ban adoption was being considered, discussed, and, and eventually adopted. We welcome Southern Methodist University's Dominique Baker, who recently led a study of those states to understand what they may have had in common. She joins Mary Beth Gassman, director of the Penn Center for Minority Serving Institutions at the University of Pennsylvania, to discuss her findings and some important takeaways. We can think of uh, state flagship education as almost like a, a scarce resource that not everyone has the ability to use. If states are interested in trying to have a population that has uh, post-secondary credentials, uh, then they have to very seriously think about what it means to adopt a ban. That's right now on Research Minutes. I'm Mary Beth Gassman. I'm a professor with the University of Pennsylvania's Graduate School of Education, and I also serve as the director of the Penn Center for Minority Serving Institution. Today, I'm really happy to be joined by Dominique Baker, who is an assistant professor with the Annette Caldwell-Simmons School of Education and Human Development at Southern Methodist University and associate in the John Goodwin Tower Center for Political Studies. It's such a pleasure to speak with you, Dominique. Welcome. Thank you, Mary Beth. It's a pleasure to be here. So today we're discussing your study, Pathways to Racial Equity in Higher Education, Modeling the Antecedents of State Affirmative Action Bans, which was recently published in the American Education Research Journal. The study centers on affirmative action bans, specifically the conditions or the characteristics of states that ultimately move to ban affirmative action policies statewide. So Dominique, can you provide a little bit of context for us? You know, what does affirmative action currently look like in the U.S. and what led you to conduct this study? Sure. So affirmative action currently in the United States, uh, race-based is banned in eight states. So it has been banned at any point in time in nine states, but the state of Texas had its ban removed after some 2003 Supreme Court cases. So what that means is in some states, institutions have the ability to use race-conscious admissions policies as one of many tools in order to create an incoming class for their colleges and universities. And in some other states, they are not allowed to use race-conscious admissions policies as their set of tools in trying to craft their incoming class to their colleges and universities. Okay, great. Um, it's interesting because because I think, you know, we all talk about affirmative action, but a lot of times we don't have someone actually tell us the most current state of it. So I really, really appreciate that. Can you also just give us an overview of this study for those who haven't read it or are thinking about reading it? And 
and what you were hoping to find and how did you go about finding it? I'm really curious about that, given that there will probably be, you know, young scholars uh, listening to us. I, I love that you say that since I, I too feel like a young scholar. Getting old. <laughs> but um, <laughs> one of the things that particularly drew me to thinking about this study was around the fact that we, we have this fairly robust evidence base that says that when these bans are adopted uh, in certain states, that when we compare them to states that have not adopted a band, we see a decrease in the enrollment of underrepresented British ethnic minority students, particularly Black and Latinx students, at the selective institutions for undergraduate institutions. But we also see decreases at graduate school level, at professional schools like medical schools. And so I was really fascinated if we know this already, what, what was sort of happening in these states when uh, ban adoption was being considered, discussed, and, and eventually adopted, I wanted to just start this work by thinking, what are the characteristics of sort of the policy and the socio-demographic nature of these different states right before they adopted bans? And what was that like compared to the states that did not adopt bans? Uh, and so I wanted to just get a chance to just sort of survey the landscape and try to better understand what was happening across the United States uh, that might have been associated with ban adoption. And so I guess you kind of alluded to this, but what kinds of expectations did we have going into the study just based on perhaps, you know, sometimes we're shaped by the environment around us or our past research, what kinds of things were you thinking about? Yeah. So when I was in my PhD program, you know, speaking of sort of talking to young scholars, when I was in my PhD program, I read a number of different types of survival analysis or diffusion studies from a political science framework. And this is the idea that the way that it's normally done within higher education is that states or uh, cities, localities, countries learn about the way that they want to create their policy shape and craft their policy based on other states in this example. Uh, so that one state may learn about how it wants to structure the financial aid uh, policies that it has because a state that was near it had tried something out and it either worked really well or failed spectacularly. And so in reading those types of studies, I became very interested in thinking through how do states learn about an affirmative action ban? How do they think through this being a good or a bad idea uh, for their residents? At the same time that I was reading that, I was doing a fair amount of reading around uh, sort of race relations within the United States and uh, different sociological and uh, political science theories around race in the United States. And so this all sort of coalesced into me wondering, what is it about these different states that might be associated with ban adoption? So I wouldn't say that I necessarily had go going into this an exact expectation of X, Y, and Z. I sort of walk through some logical hypotheses based on the literature, which in particular was looking around uh, the fact that more than likely, there would be some type of relationship between the uh, racial ethnic demographic makeup of the state or the institution and likelihood of ban adoption. 
and that there would probably be some sort of relationship between whether or not other states that are near or similar to the state of interest having this policy would also predict likelihood of ban adoption. All right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think you approach it the right way. And there actually is a lot to learn, especially doctoral students, about how to approach research to really stay focused on what the literature is telling us. So let's jump into the results a little bit. And um, I'm curious about what did you find out about states that adopt affirmative action bans in particular? So I found uh, two consistent results. One of the ways that I was looking at this relationship was through a theory that uh, was born of this this beautiful melding of political science and sociology. This started in the 40s and, and, and was looking in particular at the share of Black residents in certain localities and seeing if as uh, the share of Black residents increased, what types of compensatory policies were adopted. And so this had been applied once or twice before when trying to investigate affirmative action uh, bans in particular. And so what I did was really ground myself in that theory and think through what are the different ways that we could measure uh, sort of what the, the idea of this power imbalance is trying to get at. And so what I thought about was, let me look at the, the share of different racial ethnic demographic groups of residents in a state uh, that are around the age of going to college, so 15 to 24, and then the share of students that are attending the state flagship institution with the idea that race-conscious admissions policies uh, do not impact every institution in the same way. Not all institutions have the same amount of selectivity, and it it is generally speaking at more highly selective institutions when you have more applicants than seats that you are able to use sort of holistic admissions and think about all these different ways that you can create your class. And so having said that, when I looked at those two controlling for a number of other uh, different sociopolitical characteristics of states, uh, I found a consistent relationship between the share of white students at the state flagship and the likelihood of ban adoption. Now, I didn't just look at white students. I looked at white, I looked at black, I looked at Latinx, I looked at black and Latinx. Obviously, if I did black, Latinx and Asian, that would be close to just the inverse of looking at the white share. And so when I look across all of these groups, the consistent relationship is between the share of white students at the state flagship and likelihood of ban adoption. And that direction is that as the share of white students at the state flagship decreases, as you have a a smaller share, there's an increased likelihood that a state will adopt an affirmative action ban. So that's sort of one of the big key takeaways that I do a lot of checks on that I I can also talk about. Um, But I also then find that when we're talking about a single state and we look at that state's neighbors, so states that are in the same general region of the United States, if we see that any of those geographic neighbors have adopted an affirmative action ban, then the state that we are interested in is less likely to adopt a ban, uh, which is something uh, that a wonderful scholar, uh, Amy Lee, uh, has coined that this could be a sort of reverse policy diffusion or a sort of negative relationship that states learn about both ways that they want to create policy, and then also ways that they would prefer not to create policy. And I find evidence that states may be learning of ways that they would not like to create policy. Wow. 
Okay. So that sort of leads me to the next question I have, which is, what do you think are the implications of your findings for states and for universities, particularly, you know, I'm thinking in light of today's incredibly politically charged climate and also, you know, very bitterly divided social climate. Are there opportunities and ideas for takeaways in your research for policymakers or those who are leading these initiatives within college contexts or other stakeholders out there? Yeah, and I think um, one of the ways uh, I'll do my lead in, right, super academic, always, always caveating. Um, one of the ways that I wanted to make sure that when I thought about what the implications of this were, that I was very specific and thoughtful about this, is that I am concerned that this research is not causal. It does not identify a sort of cause and effect relationship. Uh, but what I did do was, instead of just looking at one year of enrollment for students, if I look at three years, if I look at five years of enrollment prior to that year, um, does this relationship stand up? Then I also added in, what happens if instead of the state flagship, I look at all public institutions or um, institutions that are normally thought of as having a lot of name recognition. So in this case, the highest level for Carnegie doctoral classification. And so looking at, at those different pieces, I still found that really consistent relationship with the state flagship institution and the share of white students. So that led me to think that we can think of uh, state flagship education as almost like a, a scarce resource that not everyone has the ability to use. And so if we think that there are some barriers to getting access to that scarce resource, then we could imagine a world where there are a number of policies that could be adopted in order to increase or decrease access to that resource. Race-conscious admissions is just one of the tools that can be used for that. States are going to continue increasing the share of racial ethnic minorities that live within them. If states are interested in educating those individuals, if states are interested in trying to have a population that has uh, post-secondary credentials, uh, then they have to very seriously think about what it means to adopt a ban. That this means uh, sort of the things that I talked about at the beginning, the concerns around uh, the share of enrollment uh, and what the sort of demographic enrollment of their state flagships in particular, but, you know, selective institutions in the state look like. The graduate and professional school uh, enrollment, this also sort of hampers the student support systems that are available uh, for students, the way that they're allowed to be targeted, uh, for sure. So these are the types of concerns that, that are at play that have real, real harms for students uh, that are, are only increasing across the United States. Thank you. I think lo lots of good things for people to sort of grapple with in what you're saying. Another thing I'm interested in, because as you said, you do consider yourself a young scholar, um, <laughs> um, which, which you are, which you are. You know, daily I tell myself that I'm a young scholar. So um, I love it. I love it. <laughs> so yeah, a question I'm wondering for yourself and maybe as you know, you end up, you know, mentoring others or trying to have an influence on others' uh, research agendas. What do you think are some opportunities out there for future research in this area? Where, where are the unanswered questions, if you're, if you're willing to share with us? 
Oh yeah. So I, I think one of my favorite things as I as I continue on this sort of academic research path is just the more you know, the the less you know. It's just like, oh, you've done a really good job of identifying all of the other things that you really wish that we had a better understanding of. So so for me, I, I think it's sort of twofold. One, I, I want to better understand how people create their ideas and beliefs. Uh, around who has access to this sort of scarce resource, the state flagship institution, and and how that then uh, turns into behaviors, whether that is that state legislators uh, choose to create a policy, that there are individuals who are willing to vote for a ballot initiative. How do people form that? Because I would hazard a guess that even if I went to all of the higher ed researchers in the country and I said, what is the uh, exact share of white students at the state flagship in your state? People would still waver a little bit. People people wouldn't exactly be able to get that. And, and so then if I imagine uh, just all residents of the United States, uh, I think it is it is a, a large expectation to think that they all know the, the share of white students at their state, but they all probably have an idea and a belief about who has access. Uh, and so I would really love to better understand how those beliefs are cultivated, uh, created, nurtured, uh, and how that turns into uh, behavior. So that's my first. And then my second is um, when we think about diffusion, there are many ways it can happen. The way that I chose to study it was looking from a geographical perspective. But right, I, I live in the great state of Texas. And when we in Texas talk about the states that we are particularly interested in learning from, we're always talking about, you know, a New York, California, and Illinois. And that's because of the demographic makeup, the labor market makeup, the size. Uh, that is not as much about the geography of that state. And so I would love to try to think of different ways of conceptualizing how states learn from each other and seeing how that plays out. In particular, because there were sort of activists who traveled from state to state advocating for affirmative action bans. Now, those activists did not travel to all states that adopted a ban, and they did travel to some states that wound up not adopting a ban. So it's not an exact one-to-one. But trying to better understand their role as sort of helping to shepherd these types of policies forward, uh, I think is fascinating and is a logical next step in trying to better understand how policies are adopted. Because I think it's critical. It is It is is very important to understand the impact of a policy. What does it do? How does it change resources or funds, uh, the experiences and outcomes? But it is just as vitally important to understand how policies are adopted, when and where and under what conditions, uh, because we know a lot of things about a lot of types of policies. We don't always have a good handle on understanding when those policies can be adopted, when they are likely to have sort of a window of opportunity to be successful. And so if we know that a policy works or, or harms, it is important for us to understand under what circumstances it is likely that these policies will become adopted in order to make any sort of thoughtful processes and changes for policy going forward. Wow. Wow. So you got a lot on your agenda. <laughs> yeah, yes. Just, just trying to keep my job. 
<laughs> okay, well, uh, Dominique, this is really, really great work, and it's a you know fascinating study, and uh, it's it's been my pleasure to talk to you today. Just I mean, in full disclosure, Dominique and I have worked together in the past, and I uh, am always amazed at how thorough you are and how deeply you think about all these issues, and you know, it's just model scholarship as far as I'm concerned. So I want to encourage anybody listening to read Dominique's full article, which is called, again, Pathways to Racial Equity in Higher Education, Modeling the Antecedents of State Affirmative Action Bans, which is available in the American Education Research Journal. And uh, Dominique Baker, it has been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thanks, Mary Beth, for having me. Thanks for listening to this week's Research Minutes, presented by the CPRI Knowledge Hub. For more episodes of this podcast, or to subscribe to the series, visit us at cprehub.org. That's cprehub.org. To share thoughts on today's episode, or to suggest future topics, follow us on Twitter at cprehub.org.